blessed assurance. What a great, great transition and segue into what we're talking about this morning because um, I hope that's your story. I hope that's where you are right now in your life. It, it, there's nothing more blessed than to be assured that Jesus is yours and that you know that and that your heart is steadfast in him and, and founded in him. And um, we want to look at that this morning as we complete our Biblical Foundations of Discipleship series with this, um, this final uh, sermon introducing as well our 2014 focus. Um, the, the whole idea of making sure that our hearts are firm and steadfast. To summarize really today by way of the text of Scripture, why it is that the pastoral staff here are so passionately committed and have been over the last year or so in particular about making sure our personal lives are really engaged with the Lord and um, taking whatever measures are necessary to ensure that that's taking place. And I want to uh, encourage you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1 is our text. We are finishing up the series A Disciple Is and, and the Best Practices of Disciple-Making Churches. And really the church is a finishing school for the heart. And that's what I want to um, zero in on this morning because um, on Christmas Eve, I was uh, finishing up some last-minute shopping, buying my grandson a present at a department store. And uh, as I was checking out, uh, Bronwyn was with me, and uh, I, I struck up a conversation with the cashier and uh, asked her, you know, how long the store was going to be open, and she told me this horrible hour of the night that it was going to be Christmas Eve and, and I said do you have to work until that time she said, oh no no said, Christmas Eve that's that's a very important time for me and of course Christmas Day and and I, I take that very seriously and uh, you know you have to have a pause in life and I said I said you know I, that's true I said I, I think you need a pause in life once a week though and she said are you the pastor at Calvary Baptist Church <laughs> it's like I never know how to answer that question because, you know, i got to be careful. I said, yes. And she said, I said, she said to me, I used to go there. I said, you did? She said, yes. I said, why don't you? She said, well, you know, I got busy at working at this place and working Sundays and one thing led to another. And she said to me this. And I pray that she's even here this morning because she said to me this. I think my faith has lapsed. So I invited her back to church and prayed that she'd be here. I don't know if she's here. But that got me to thinking about the responsibility we have for each other and our hearts and where our hearts are at. And um, our role and responsibility as a church, in the, in, at the organized level in particular, because that's what I'm really talking about this morning, our ultimate mandate as a church is not, at least, outside social work. Our, our mandate is certainly not misrepresenting the truth of God's word so that health and prosperity and happy thoughts will make our organization a, a hit in Canada, a national hit. It's certainly not, our role is certainly not the transferring of biblical information from one mind to another. 
Our responsibility is not to cull the flock demographically so that we can have the type and kind of flock that we wish we had or want to have. And this may surprise some of you, but our role and responsibility is not really evangelism. Our role and responsibility is to bring glory to God by bringing his people to their intended level of completeness in Christ. That's our role and responsibility. And to that we have given our vision and mission in these days. In fact, Disciples Shift 128 has everything to do with the text that I'm talking to you about this morning, our central text, Colossians 128, which is we proclaim him, meaning Christ, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And the Apostle Paul said, I struggle, I labor, I give myself to this with all of his energy. And it seems to me that we should as well. The church is to be the finishing school for the heart. Failure to invest most of our energy here means that we are abdicating our role and responsibility as a church and as church leaders. Our work, by the way, will be tested by the Lord, tested by fire, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, to see whether or not it is just combustible and burns up, or whether it's lasting and flame-resistant and durable. So I want to explore with you this morning, and we're going to read the text in a moment, but I want to explore with you this morning the meaning of presenting everyone perfect in Christ. What does that really mean? We throw it around, we talk about it, we've used the verse, but what does it mean in its context? And I want to look at it from the three angles of the context this morning. And if you've been following along, you know that in this last series we've been calling um, our, our sermons the great something, whether it be the great commandment or the great commission. You remember that we talked about the, the great plan um, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 uh, of, of uh, pastors, teachers, equipping God's people for the works of ministry. We've talked about the great example in Acts chapter 2 of God's people all having uh, everything in common and, and uh, doing life together. This morning I want to talk about the great cause. The great cause. And by the way, the great cause taken out of this text is to make sure that your heart cannot be moved from the hope held out in the gospel, or other words, blessed assurance. That's really what we're talking about this morning, to present you holy, without blemish, free from accusation, because you have continued in your faith, established and firm. So let's look at the text, Colossians chapter 1. I want to begin reading at verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith. Now, you know me well enough to have heard me many, many times assure you that once you are brought into the family of God, God will never, ever let you go. But at the same time, you have heard me teach you many, many times from the text that God holds out intention statements like this, if you continue in your faith. I can't explain it. It's not logical for the human mind to be assured that you will be held no matter what, and on the other hand, to hold this tension if you continue in the faith, but that's how God presents it. And so there is this promise of God's great sovereign 
hold and dominion over our lives, and yet the responsibility that he gives us to, to keep ourselves, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to keep ourselves in the faith, to, to come together and encourage and admonish and teach one another that we might remain steadfast and firm. That's the teachings of the scriptures. It's held in tension, but it is taught. And so we must take it seriously and look at it and say, if you continue in faith means that, like that lady I had an exchange with, where is she? Where is her heart? Where is her soul? Established and firm. Not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. And that's what we want to uh, explore today and investigate. How do we do this? This is the gospel that you, you, that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not met me personally, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding fine arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in, 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 in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Well, I'm going to stop there even though I don't want to because the flow of this text is so amazing and is so filled with a glorious truth that builds up our hearts and our lives. But I'll stop there. I want to focus in on verse 28 of, of chapter 1 and the surrounding context to build in you encouragement today and hope and steadfastness and firmness of heart. That's my intention today from God's Word because um, it is absolutely important not to be moved, obviously, from the hope that we have that is held out in the gospel. By any sleight of hand, that you might face in mind or uh, in body, or by purveyors of doubt, or by any marketeers of religious snake oil who would try to steer you away from things that, that, that are true and steer you away to untruth. This is the fight of our lives. This is the fight of our lives as a church. We must pay the price for this. Never to be tempted to look for alternatives. When the uh, winds... Uh, buffet against the brick wall of our lives and we're uh, emotionally at the edge of caving in, we must never ever look at an alternative to Christ, uh, our great hope and the hope of glory. 
or that we might just drift away as some have or a loss of appetite for the things of God. And so this morning I want to mention three things to you and the first one is this, that it is necessary for us to make every effort to grow the church up about suffering. Uh, the world, by the way, is unapologetically opposed viciously to a Christ-centered heart. I don't think uh, that comes as a shock to any of you, and we are increasingly seeing that the proclamation or presentation of the truth is met with great opposition. In fact, one writer said this, reconciliation is a costly business. And the Lordship of Christ, Him being the dominant sovereign God of the universe, does not alter the matter of cost because the stakes of salvation are incredibly high. The rescue of a lost soul from the kingdom of darkness into, to be placed into the kingdom of His amazing light is a costly, costly business that is fiercely opposed by the enemies of our soul. And as a result, Paul addresses in this presentation of what it means to be presented perfect or complete in Christ. He wants to start off by reminding us about the issue of suffering. And um, in particular, I want to look at what this verse 24 teaches. What does this text teach about this suffering? Uh, this is a, a very complicated word, worded uh, scripture text. This is one of the ones I'm sure Peter read and said, when he said, you know, Paul writes some really complicated things and sometimes I, I struggle to understand them. And this is one of those wordy sentences that is filled with doctrinal and theological truth, but is um, one of those verses that I have been all over the map in terms of my own understanding of it over the years. And um, not long ago, Dwayne and I were debating this text and I, I landed on something and I said to him, this is the meaning, Dwayne. And, and now I'm going to have to go back on it because what I'm going to teach you this morning is what I really believe the meaning is. Um, even though I don't think I taught him heresy. But I used to look at that and see, there were, there were, there, there's uh, the words there, lacking in Christ's afflictions. And I used to think, you know, um, wow, uh, there's this, and I came up with this, uh, there's this eschatological quota of suffering that must take place in the universe, Duane, and we have been given the responsibility in addition to what Christ did to, to um, uh, complete all of that suffering. And uh, I, I think that's wrong. And so I want I to teach you uh, today what I really believe, and, and I want to look at it from three quick questions. Why, you'll notice there are two words there that, that juxtaposed to suffering don't really work for me. One is rejoice, and the other is lacking. You know, when I think suffering, and I'm sure you think the same way, the, the first word that comes to me is not rejoice. Oh, Lord, I'm so happy that I'm suffering. And the other thing is that when I look at it and say what's lacking in suffering, I'm never, what, lacking in suffering? I think all of us think we've had enough suffering. Thank you very much. None of us are like, hey, Lord, could you give us a whole bunch more suffering? Because we feel like we're lacking in suffering. But here's Paul. He presents here these two words juxtaposed to suffering, and he says, now I want you to digest these because this is the way you're really going to have to be, live if you want to be complete and perfect in Christ. And so um, the first question is, wh when do we rejoice exactly? Because most of us are, we're, we're aware that we suffer um, as a result of being followers of Christ. So when is it exactly that we suffer? And most of us are like, well, you know what? Um, suffering is something you have to get over and, and get through and get to the other side. And so we can rejoice in spite of our suffering or we can rejoice at the end of our suffering. But the Apostle Paul says, no, no. When, now I rejoice, he says, in, in 
what was suffered for you. Paul says here, I was suffering, because he's writing from prison here. He's, he's saying to this, I, I rejoiced in the suffering, or during the suffering, I was rejoicing. Now, he's going to explain to us how he could do that in a few moments. Because we need to understand what is the issue that is lacking. This is why he was rejoicing in the suffering. What's the lacking thing here? I, I think if I were to say this verse to you in the way that it is worded in, a, in the original, it might be easier for you interp to interpret. NIV has kind of led us in a different direction here. But here's what it really should say. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up what is, still never appears in the original, what is lacking in my flesh in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. You see the difference? And I fill up what is lacking in my flesh in regard to Christ's, Christ, Christ's afflictions. So Paul, the Apostle Paul is teaching us here the reason he rejoiced. He says, I'm rejoicing because I lack in some areas spiritually in this whole journey to become complete or perfect in Christ. And there are some things, some rough edges, some things that I need to learn and need to experience in order to become perfect in Christ that require suffering. There are certain things lacking in my life, and so I require this. And so I can tell you that while I was in prison and, and, and suffering in prison and, and, and having faced some, some difficult struggles, that I was rejoicing because I knew that in this suffering moment, not in spite of the suffering, not after the suffering, but in the present moment of the suffering, Christ was filling up in me, in my body, what was lacking spiritually, not only for me, but for the church. That's what he's teaching here. That's a powerful lesson for us, and one really hard emotionally to digest, but one that he invites us to consider uh, bringing into our lives. Suffering on purpose makes a whole lot of difference in our lives as opposed to this seems so random so so unnecessary why can't God excuse us he's sovereign over the universe and so this is why he rejoiced because Christ supervises affliction so that both the church and the suffering saint make spiritual progress and by calling it Christ's afflictions he was putting ownership to the suffering in, in in terms of Christ himself identifies with the afflictions that he is permitting in your life. You remember when um, the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus and he had his great vision of Christ. What was the first thing that Christ said to him? Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul was out persecuting people and Christ took it upon himself to, to so identify with his people that he said, literally, Paul, you are persecuting me. And so it is here that Christ doesn't abandon us in, in afflictions. He owns the afflictions with us, identifying with us, growing us, roughing off the edges of spiritual lack in our lives. That the church, that we personally may, be grow, may grow up and become complete in Christ, perfect in Christ. 
So Christ and his body continue to suffer for the world. Now some of the suffering we bring on ourselves by sin. That's not what we're talking about here. Some is unlawfully imposed on us, which Paul's prison sentence certainly was. And by the way, when suffering is imposed on us unlawfully, we have every right to object. As Paul did when he was uh, wrongfully beaten as a Roman citizen and made the officials march him out of town, out of prison and out of town. However, it does not change the fact. While we have every right to object, suffering and, and unfair mistreatment will come our way. And in this, Christ supervises our progress spiritually. Now, there's a second thing that comes out of the text here. Verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So not only are we to make every effort to grow the church up in suffering, but to fulfill the purpose of ensuring the people of God are firm and fixed in their faith as it relates to the word of God. I have been commissioned, Paul says, we are commissioned from this to present the word of God in its fullness by bringing every way of Christ to everyone in Christ. That's our responsibility. Investing the word of God in people that the power of God may come into full effect in your life. This is so urgent. In fact, um, the, uh, the apostles, I think, took the word of God uh, far more seriously as they understood the nature of it. Uh, the word of God is not just like some book. It's not just words on a page. In 1 John 4, 9, we are taught there that the word of God is God's seed. Every time the word of God is presented to us, God, in fact, impregnates us with his word, which in, in effect is the raw material that's necessary to bring you to life and fruitfulness. That's what makes the Word of God entirely different from any other book you will ever read in your life. If you were to read a million books, they would not do for you or to you what the Word of God is able to do. And so we present to everyone the fullness of the Word of God implanted in their lives that God might use it to bring its power to effect in our lives. The Word of God is powerful. Like a two-edged sword. We know these kinds of verses. But we need to understand, therefore, that we must never undervalue the, the word of God in its perfecting or completing work in our lives. It's not about going to certain seminars and hanging out with certain people and, and, and watching how this is done. or what. It's about the word of God being implanted in your life. God brings it to life. We plant, we water. God causes it to grow. That's how people are brought to, to salvation. By the proclamation of God's word. God's word is implanted into their lives and God uses that word by quickening their heart, bringing their heart to life to realize and recognize the word of God and he brings new life to them. That's how salvation occurs. That's how sanctification occurs. It's the word of God being brought into our lives. Knowing every way of Christ is how your way can be changed to his way. That's the finishing school that we're talking about. 
which, by the way, is about proclaiming Christ. That's what this whole text is about. That's what this whole letter to the Colossians is about, proclaiming Christ. Uh, he is the one. And he specifically tells us of two responsibilities in this proclamation, admonishing and teaching. And um, the word admonishing uh, is, is, uh, is where we uh, challenge each other's hearts. That's where we passionately seek to, to uh, correct and to reprove and to warn and to discipline. It's the, it's the work of repentance, of, of, of going to our brothers and our sisters and admonishing or exhorting or warning or disciplining. That, that's what that word is all about, uh, that we might get to the heart of the matter, that uh, our lives may change. But... The teaching is the head of the matter. That's, that's where we uh, exchange doctrinal truth to one another so that, that our behavior is founded upon God's truth. So it's both heart and head. Uh, we proclaim Christ to your heart and to your head and, and each other. This is the responsibility, one with the other. And, and in this one verse, this one small verse, verse 28, everyone, although in the NIV you only see the word twice, is three times recorded. It really says we proclaim him admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. When everyone is, when a word is in the same verse three times, it's certainly an emphasis. This is not for the elite. This is not for missionaries or just for pastors. This is for all of God's people that are to be admonished and taught the, the rich things of Jesus Christ. And uh, from, from least to, to greatest, that's what this is all about. The whole truth for the whole church and everyone else. No one is left out in this mission and vision of God. So that we may all be presented complete in Christ. Now, or, or perfect, as the word may be presented. And certainly is in the NIV. So what does this word perfect mean? Um, most of us, when we hear that something's perfect, we think flawless. And that's because uh, most of us have a Greek mindset. Anybody raised in an education system in North America is foundationed on basically a Greek teaching system and mindset. But the Apostle Paul was not writing from a Greek mindset. He was writing from a Hebrew mindset because he was... A Jew, and he was writing primarily to Jews in the early stages. And so when he presented the word perfect in the Hebrew mindset, that word actually means um, uh, where you are fulfilling your purpose. That's why um, some of the translations have moved away from perfect to the word complete. Fulfilling your purpose. And in the context, it's about being wholehearted and sincere and, and in right relationship with God and and wholly established and firm and, and, and steadfast in your faith. Uh, you will fulfill your purpose uh, when you really belong to Christ and have unwavering trust that the Lord is over all other powers. And this is not a program that, uh, this is a consequence. This is a consequence of God's 
intentional sovereign choice in which ways to, to, to uh, bring pressure and suffering into your life. And in, in, in his work of, uh, of bringing the wordsmith of God's word into your life, uh, this becomes a consequence of your life that you are becoming complete in Christ. That's what this is all about. The, the role of the community of faith is to is to provide every reason for us to be that and to believe God. That we really belong to God. We really know that we belong to Christ. We're really sure of that. We have that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. And not only that though, that, that we are never tempted to, to waver from the fact that he alone holds all the power of the universe to enable us and help us and strengthen us and encourage us in our time of need that we might never be tempted to look to an alternative. That's the responsibility of completeness and perfecting. That's why he goes on to write, I, I struggle over this, I labor over this with all of the energy of God that so powerfully works in me and I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and will continue to struggle for you. And he says in verse two, because my purpose is that, is that you may be encouraged in your heart and, and, and united in love and, and have complete understanding so that you won't be tossed around by fine-sounding arguments that are not true. I labor at this, Paul says, so, so that discouragement from pain and trouble will not tempt you to look elsewhere. You remember when John the Baptist was thrown into prison and was despairing of his life? And, and while he was in prison, he was saying, he, he said to his disciples, you know, go ask Jesus if he is the one or should we look for another? Why do you think he asked that? He asked that because he was locked up in prison and was about to die and wondered where is this powerful Messiah who has come to liberate us from the grip of our enemy? Are you the one or should we look for another? And if we're honest with our hearts, when things start to go south for us, sometimes we wonder, has God lost his power? Is he unable to help? Is there another alternative? Are there some better, uh, more positive thinking ideas that I could come up with? Not only that, but we, it says here that, that, will, that so that you will not have in, only, only have encouragement in heart, but united in love. That the community of God will demonstrate an unbreakable unity of their love. I, I want you to know that um, one of the uh, um, characteristics of 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 great churches that people throw around. Is it, is it a friendly church? I, I want to tell you this morning, I don't want to be a friendly church. A friendly church has some greeters at the door and, and they shake your hands and they say, we're glad you're here. And a few people say hi to you and some guy with a suit gets up at the front and says, give everybody a, a hug for New Year's. And Oh, isn't it such a friendly church? And then you go home and for six days, nobody cares about you. That's what they call a friendly church. We don't need to be a friendly church. We need to have friends. We need to have brothers and sisters. We need to care for each other every day. Uh, let me ask you a question. Who could you call at 3 o'clock in the morning and they would drop everything? Well, get out of bed, I suppose. And they would come and help you. Who knows when you're not around? Who knows when you've gone missing because of illness? Who knows when you are suffering from a loss of appetite for the things of God and have 
just gone AWOL. Who knows that here? A friendly church doesn't know that. But a church with friends and brothers and sisters, family, they know that. That's what Paul's talking about here. The finishing school of a church. And then so that we will make sure that we have no unorthodox beliefs, that we minimize the spiritual wobble, that we won't let go of truth no matter how much the culture pushes us. I'm tired of hearing, I don't know about you, did God really say or does God really mean? Are you tired of that question? I'm really sick of that question. Yes, God really means. Yes, God really said. And it doesn't change because the calendar changes. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. We have to stick there. We have to belong there. And then finally, um, the third is by really knowing the mystery of God. Do we realize here he's talked about mystery several times. Do you know how enriched and privileged you are? What, what he says here, um, verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. Mystery, knowing the mystery of God, things kept hidden to the uninitiated. Do we realize sitting in this room that truth revealed can only be supernaturally comprehended? Do you understand that if you understand the things of God, it's because God enabled you to understand them? Do you understand that? If you wonder about people outside of faith and you feel like you're knocking your head against the wall trying to explain the very simplest things of truth to them and they don't get it, it's because it has not been, their minds have not been opened by the, the things of God. God has to open up or it's a mystery that's, that's hidden. And so God has given us this great responsibility to, to share this truth to those whose ears have been opened and whose eyes see. Those are our mission field. Human cleverness cannot uncover unless God unlocks. And that's it. And the mystery here is two things. It says here the mystery down in verse 2 of Christ. The mystery of God, namely Christ. Christ himself, in which are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The scope of Christ's um, divine completeness. He's not just a prophet or an associate of God or a lesser God. He is copyrighted all the things of God. You can't know God or his purposes outside of knowing Christ. Now we have this, you know, in our country... Uh, the vast majority of people will claim that they believe in God. And that may very well be true in our own national anthem. God, keep our land. I, it's hard to remember lyrics when you're up here. Glorious and free. But they don't know God. And they can't know God. They can't know God or his purposes outside of Christ. That's this great mystery that's been revealed. The mystery of God, namely Christ himself. But the second is Christ, the hope of the, definite article, glory. Christ, the hope of glory. In two ways, this guarantees to us that our lives can be changed because Christ lives in us, the hope of the glory. That we only experience in, in a in a limited fashion now, but we'll experience in its fullness when Christ comes to receive us or we die and go to be with him. That's the glory that we're talking about here. The transformational life that, that Christ alone presents. This great mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And of course, this was a great reality to the Gentiles that they were brought into faith. What transformation has taken place here is we have moved from the addiction of, of, of consuming 
and the, um, the fierce quest for independence and the automatic default to self-centeredness by Christ in us moving us now to a passion to give and to a love for community dependence and for a preference for sacrifice and service. We have completely changed 180 degrees. And let me tell you that the mindset of the pagan world is kept out of the church to the degree we know God's word and refuse to negotiate it away. The mystery of Christ himself and who he is. And Christ in us, the hope of the glory. We must never settle for being underexposed to God's word. Book reports, movie plots, and feel-good moral devotionals about the Bible are not cutting it in terms of moving people to be complete in Christ. Rather, fully explaining the biblical text. There are too many chief priests in the religious system of our country and not enough teaching shepherds. Chief priests test, test, the, way, test the, the wind to see which way the culture is moving. And then tell people what they want to hear so that they will not lose their political position. Teaching shepherds tell you the truth so that you might become complete, perfect in Christ. So at Calvary, we will make every effort to invest every way of Christ to everyone in Christ. Our Father and our God, thank you for allowing us the privilege of having the word of God open to us this morning. To have been here to worship you and express our love for you. Our love for God's people. I pray, Father, that you will take this now and, and um, bring it alive in our lives. That we might not just know this, but we might live it in its fullest, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Allow me to, as we begin this year 2014 to encourage your heart with a health challenge just for a moment. We will never fall into completeness in Christ. It will never accidentally happen in our lives. In fact, in truth, we are like the songwriter of that great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the Lord I love. And that songwriter left the Lord, by the way. That woman I met at the department store has just reconfirmed in my life the seriousness of our lives and our lives together. That it is so easy to develop a loss of appetite for the things of God. If you come to Calvary and treat it as a show or entertainment, you come once a week and it's an infomercial or a seminar, I'm telling you that you are in jeopardy of not being complete in Christ. And your heart is at great risk. And that's why it's so important, we believe, that you find your way into a group that's smaller, a discipling community of friends, not a friendly church, 
friends, family, brothers and sisters who will admonish you and teach you and watch over you. And they will notice when you're not at church for a week or two or three. In a church this size, it is impossible to watch over the flock unless we all watch the flock. And I'm going to say simply to you that if you are not prepared to get into a discipling community, I would encourage you not to come to Calvary. I would encourage you to go find a church of 30 people so you can be watched over. There'll be accountability. Your soul will be looked after. But better yet, you stay at Calvary and you take that insert and you act upon it. It is our responsibility together to present everyone perfect in Christ. Everyone. Our Father, that's your vision for us, I know. So please help us. Help us to engage our hearts in this responsibility and take the action necessary to stay, to continue in the faith and hold on to the hope of the gospel, I pray, for Jesus' sake, amen.